Well, uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been uh, talking about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. It's funny, it's kind of a, a children's story in many people's minds, you know, a story that we tell our kids when, they're, when we're growing up with them and all that, you know, Jonah and the whale and being spewed up on dry land and all that stuff. But I think we're kind of taking a look at it from a different perspective. We're seeing that this is actually a very adult-like story. And the main theme in the book of Jonah is like really clear but really profound, and that is that we all tend to run from God. We all tend to run from God. So in chapter 1, we looked at that theme of the fact that Jonah ran from God. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but God ran right after him. God was in the storm, and God was in the whale. And, and so many times in the storms of our life and in the big whale problems of our lives or the great fish problem of our lives, God is in those. When we run from him, he chases after us. That's just how cool and awesome and grace-filled God is. And then as we got into chapter 2, we, we realized that as Jonah now had run from God, he needs to run back to God. And so Jonah started running to God in chapter 2, and he's praying to God, and he's seeking God, and we realize that God receives us back when we run back to him and honor him and his truth and turn to him in repentance. And then a couple weeks ago, before our missions conference, we look, took a look at chapter 3, and we realized that not only do we run from God and run to God, but we can re even run for God. Do you remember that? Run for God. That, that we can now run for God in such a way as we tell others about his grace and his love and his truth, carrying the message, and in the New Testament, the message of Jesus that God has given us as well. And today, as we get to chapter 4, it's the last chapter of Jonah, we want to talk about this idea of running with God of now running with God. And it's fascinating, the fact that this book ends by challenging you and I that once we've run from God and learned to run to God, and once we've run for God, that the rest of our lives are now going to be spent learning to run with Him. And I don't know about you, but I love that image of running or walking with God. It's a powerful image. I mean, today many Christians tend to reduce the Christian life to a lifestyle, a bunch of do's and don'ts a bunch of moral values or convictions or even theological beliefs that we tend to have. And all those things are good and fine, but I don't know about you, but I think those things are more of an outpouring of our faith. They come out of our walk with God. They're not the substance, the heart of our walk with God. It's good that we're moral. It's good that we have certain theological views. All those things are good and fine, but the reality is the heart of our relationship with Almighty God is a walk. A personal relationship in which we pray to him and he moves in our lives and we walk with him and we see him work in our lives and it's a relationship that we're after. And Jonah chapter 4 is going to show us this. And it's going to give us some key steps or truths on how you and I can have the kind of run with God or walk with God that makes all the difference. So enough introduction. Let's read about it in uh, the book of Jonah. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to Jonah chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've put the text there on your outline and your bulletin. We'll also, as usual, put it up here on the screen. So let me read for you what happens in chapter 4 here. Again, context is that Jonah had been called to preach repentance to the Ninevites. He rejected that call and ran. God ran after him, got his attention. He gave the call in chapter 3 to the Ninevites to turn back to him. They did. And God relented from bringing disaster upon the nation of Assyria. And there was a huge revival. And you'd think that Jonah would be thrilled with this, but he's not. So let's read about it in chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east end of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the day or the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Some of you are thinking right now, two things. You're thinking, the story ends like that? Yes, it ends like that. We'll get to that in a minute. And you're thinking, now, what in the world does this have to say about me walking with God? And I'm glad you asked. Three things. Three things that this story, this at the end of this story, teaches you and I about how to have the kind of run with God that can become an all-out sprint. How you and I can walk with Him in such a way that makes all the difference. And here's the first thing I see. Look up here on the screen, and that is this. That if you want to run with God, you need to feel what you need to feel and then bring it to God. This is so cool. You need to feel what you need to feel and then bring it to God. Let me show you this. So notice with me what happens with Jonah right at the outset of chapter 4 here, just after the entire nation of Nineveh, anywhere between 120,000 and a million people, repent and turn to God. Look at verses 1 and then the first part of verse 2. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So simply notice, folks, that Jonah is mad here, right? He's angry. It says that that something displeased Jonah exceedingly. You see that there? (laughs) It displeased him exceedingly. That word displeased here is the Hebrew word ra'ah. And get this, it literally means evil. It's saying that what Jonah saw and experienced, the Ninevites repenting and receiving God's grace, was evil to him. Interesting. And it gave him a bad feeling. And what was this bad feeling based on not liking what he saw? It says he became angry. That word in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in means hot or burned. So Jonah was fuming mad. He was red in the face. He was that angry. So Jonah saw something as evil and was mad that the Ninevites, a pagan and very immoral nation, had repented and avoided God's predicted judgment. Now, once you and I get this, what I need you to wrestle with at this point is why. Have you ever thought about that? Why would Ninevites repenting and avoiding God's judgment anger Jonah so much? We need to wrestle with this. As many of you know, when I prepare messages based on the text, I I consult the Bible experts, what we call the commentators over the years, who who all down through the centuries have kind of uh, espoused upon this text from their understanding of the original Hebrew in this case, and years and years of study. 
And when you consult the commentators on this, it's fascinating. They come up with some differing suggestions as to why Jonah might have been so mad. What some have suggested over the years is that Jonah was mad because it made him look like a false prophet. You know, predicting one thing, in this case the destruction of Nineveh, and then not having it come true because they repented and God relented on his destruction. So they surmise that Jonah was mad because it made him look kind of foolish. And though this could be, I don't think that's what's happening here because Jonah will say in verse 2 that he knew that this might happen all along. So we know that Jonah expected this probably to happen. So I don't think that's the core of why Jonah is mad. And so what others have suggested is that Jonah is angry because he wants to protect God's reputation here. You see, the Ninevites most likely aren't going to stay in their repentant state in Jonah's mind. And so they're going to go back to their own old ways, thus marring the name of God. And so he was mad that their repentance ran the risk of making God look foolish for forgiving them. But again, I don't see anything like that here in the text. And as I read the book of Jonah, I go, you know, it doesn't seem like he's all that concerned about God's reputation in the first three chapters. Now, don't get me wrong, I think he loves the Lord, but I don't think he's all that concerned. He seems more focused on himself and his own feelings than some other things. And so I don't think that's what's happening here. And so what still other Bible experts have suggested over the years is that Jonah is mad because he doesn't like the fact that undeserving sinners get forgiven of their sin. He just doesn't like to see God so forgiving and grace-filled. And I think we're on to something with this, folks. You see, ever since chapter 1, Jonah has had a, had a problem with God possibly extending his grace and mercy to those outside the fold of Israel. When Jonah initially receives the call to preach to Nineveh, he resists, knowing that sometimes people listen and that God forgives, and he doesn't want this kind of grace-filled interaction to occur. So he runs from God's call. And then in chapter 2, Jonah turns back to God because he had hit rock bottom, like literally. But even then, it's not like he's softened to other people. He's just like in dire straits, and so he turns back to God. Because in chapter 3, we see Jonah doing the minimal requirements necessary to preaching to Nineveh, right? He simply preaches a message of destruction. That's all he says. Nothing about Jehovah being good and gracious and slow to anger and forgiving and his truth and all this. He just says, hey, destruction's going to come on you people because of your sin, kind of hoping that it would. But then it doesn't because the Ninevites listen and they repent and God relents. And I think that this kind of grace and forgiveness and lack of judgment bothers Jonah. In other words, Jonah is what we call a religious exclusive. That's what one of the commentators calls him. He was a spiritual bigot who didn't want anyone else other than the Jewish people to be part of God's forgiveness plan. No one outside the fold allowed. And you and I know people like this. They see themselves as righteous and holy as God's chosen ones and and their church or their nation in this case is kind of being the apple of God's eyes. So much so that they don't want some unrighteous, sin-ridden group of people like Assyria to be able to claim to know God. Jonah wanted Nineveh to pay for their sin. He wanted justice, not mercy. And he was mad and angry that God allowed the Ninevites to escape God's judgment for decades of sin based on one act of repentance. And you and I know people like this. We know people in which it bothers them that God just might forgive somebody after 20 or 30 years of sin simply because they accept Christ. Amen? It bugs them. 
Billy Graham crusades bug them. They don't like seeing people walk the aisles like that. They go, you can't get off that scot-free. And if you do, I hope there's going to be an awful lot of penance and remorse and all this that goes on for years on end because you've made God's life and everybody else's life a mess with the sin that you've had in your life. We know people who think like this. Now, I think Jonah was thinking like this. This is the older son in the story of the prodigal son. Have you read the story? You know, the younger son goes off and he squanders the inheritance on wine, women, and song, and then he comes back a pitiful wreck. And instead of the father saying, well, I guess I'm glad you're back, get back to work, the father says, let's throw a party. And he receives his son back with a joyful embrace and saying, my son was lost and now he's found. And the older son says, gosh, dad, you're so graceful. I just love that about you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you know what? He says, this is just not right. It's not fair. You don't receive people back like that, God, or dad in this case. You just don't do that. And the reality is, is that this is the way that many Christians tend to think today. And it's how Jonah was thinking. And grace can't come at that kind of price. So Jonah's mad. He doesn't like God's grace extended to him the way that it was. And for right or for wrong, we'll get to that in a minute, he was mad about this. Now, notice with me then what Jonah does next. This is fascinating. He's mad, but look at what it says in verse 2. This is very interesting. It says, and he prayed to the Lord. Now, you don't want to miss that. He prayed to the Lord. What do you do when you're mad at God? Even if you're mad for wrong reasons, what do you do when you're mad with God? What Jonah did is he decided to pray to him. He took what he was feeling, all of his anger and displeasure, as misplaced as it was, and he authentically and honestly took it to God. That's what he did with it. And folks, I think there's something in this for you and me. Now very quickly, in order to fully understand what's happening here, let me give you a quick primer from as far as I understand it and how emotions and feelings work. Really three things about the nature of emotions and feelings. These aren't in your notes. You're going to want to maybe flip the page over if you write notes and write these down. First, look up here on the screen. Emotions are usually a response to something around us, and hence they are loosely controllable, right? Emotions are usually a response to something around us, and, and they're as a result of this, loosely controllable. So you have a thought or an action occurs around you and you have a feeling as a result of that. So if you experience a loss in your life, you're most likely going to feel sadness. If you experience an injustice in your life, you're most likely going to feel anger. If you experience an act of kindness in your life, if somebody gives you a gift, you're going to experience happiness or gratitude. That's how emotions work. They're kind of like a dummy light on a car. They're a response to something going on inside or around the engine of your life or your soul. And so because of the responsive nature of emotions, now don't miss this, they are loosely controllable. In other words, because they're a response, we don't have as direct control over them as we do our thoughts and our actions, right? So you can say, I'm going to think this, and you think it. Or I'm going to do this, and you do it. But have you ever found yourself saying, you know, I'm going to feel this, and it just doesn't come, right? I'm going to feel joy, and it just doesn't come. Or I'm going to feel angry, and it just doesn't come. Though anger tends to come more quickly than joy. But anyways, we, 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 we tend to be able not to control anger. Why? Because it's a response. It's our body's way of responding to the things around us. I like how one... Um, Expert said it to me years ago. He said that angers are kind of like a pinball in a pinball machine, or feelings, I'm sorry, kind of like a pinball in a pinball machine. 
He, he said you can nudge them and you can use the flippers to try to get them to go in a certain direction, but, but you can't completely control where that ball's going to go. That's the way that, that feelings and emotions tend to be inside of us. So with that said, notice the second thing you need to know about uh, feelings and emotions then, and that is that in and of themselves, as far as I can tell, they are amoral. They're amoral. In other words, they are neither right nor wrong. Now listen closely, folks. In and of themselves, emotions, I don't believe, are right or wrong. They just are. They're a response to the things around you. But don't misunderstand. What might come right before the emotion, the action, or your perception, that can be wrong. And certainly what comes after your emotion, what you do with it, that can be wrong. I just don't think the emotion itself is usually right or wrong. Uh, so think about it. You come home for dinner tomorrow night and you expect dinner to be on the table. All day long you've been thinking about pot roast or something like that, okay? And so you're expecting pot roast, you're salivating after it at noon and you're thinking about it all afternoon because we tend to be food obsessed in this nation and, and you're thinking about dinner and you get home at 5.30 and your spouse decided not to make dinner that night and certainly didn't make pot roast. What would you experience? Well, you might experience a little bit of a letdown, some disappointment, maybe even some frustration, right? Some guys might even get a little bit angry at that. Now, if that happened to me, uh, and Kim said to me, well, you shouldn't be angry about that, which she wouldn't say because she tends to honor the amoral nature of, of emotions, um, that would not be a correct thing to say, that I shouldn't be angry about that. The correct thing to say would be, well, boy, you set yourself up for profound disappointment, didn't you? In other words, you had a perception going on all day that I was going to make dinner for you and that I was going to make pot roast and I don't know whatever gave you the idea that I was going to do that. So your emotion is probably right on based on the false perception that you had. Do you see this? But the perception wasn't correct. I find most situations tend to work like that. Your emotions are working pretty well. Your faulty perception is what's at fault there, or the action or behavior that caused the emotion might have been bad. And then certainly what we do with our emotions, what comes right after them, those can be wrong. If you yell, manipulate, try to control people, hurt them with your emotions, then certainly those are all sinful things. But again, that doesn't make the emotion itself right or wrong. I th think they tend to be kind of amoral. So emotions are a response to something around you, in and, in, and through, in and around us, and hence they're loosely controllable. They are by and large amoral entities. And, and then thirdly, just so that we understand emotions, get this, because this is what Jonah's doing, is that feelings and emotions then must be felt and experienced and many times even expressed if they are going to be processed healthily or in a healthy way. And this just makes sense, doesn't it, folks? I mean, if you buy into the fact at all that emotions are primarily responses to the stuff in and around us and are not necessarily right and wrong, but just are, then wouldn't it make sense that the best way to deal with them would be to honor them by feeling them and then being with them and at times, even when needed, expressing them in appropriate ways? I believe this is how God has wired each of us with feelings and emotions that need to be felt and experienced in order to be processed in the best fashion. But you know, when you look closely at human beings today, we don't do what Jonah does here. When we're angry or displeased, even with God, we don't bring it to him. We do one of three things. Is this not true? We've either first, we deny them. We, we know people like this. We deny them. 
That somebody will be fuming mad, and I'll just be kind of empathetic. I'll say, it seems like you're kind of mad. They'll go, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I, I, I had one guy who was so fuming mad in my first church about something, and I said, gosh, Larry, you said it wasn't you, Larry. There's another guy who said, Larry, you seem mad. And he said, I'm not mad. I'm frustrated. I thought, what's the difference there? It's like, it just, you know, we just tend to deny our emotions. The second thing some people do is we tend to push them down. You ever find yourself doing this? I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to feel this. And we just shove them deep down in, inside ourselves. The only problem is like that proverbial jack box. Jack in the box. You know, we played with as kids that you keep cranking it, you keep pushing it down. What happens? Eventually it just pops up somewhere. Somebody wants to find a depression is this. They said depression is anger and guilt turned inward. And I think that's right. That a lot of depressed people tend to be very angry people, guilty people who aren't processing that. They're just pushing it down and it's turning inward on themselves. And then the third thing I think many people do with their emotions instead of just coming clean with them is that they cover them up, right? We just keep busy, just ignore them and keep moving. It's kind of the American way. While all the time what is the most healthy thing for our soul is to simply give credence and acknowledgement to them like Jonah is doing it here, and even expressing them appropriately. And get this, when you do that, you're relating to God. And you're learning to run with Him. And that's the point, folks. That as we attempt to run with God, to relate to Him in an authentic way, it's important that you feel what you need to feel and then bring it to God. That's what Jonah is doing here. And it's fascinating to note that God does not fault Jonah for doing this. Look at verse 4. God says to Jonah in verse 4 there in the ESV, it says, Do you do well to be angry? I actually don't like that translation of this passage. The NASB, I think, is a bit more to the point and specific. Look up here on the screen. The NASB says it this way. It says, Do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Do you have good reason? In other words, God is not faulting Jonah for being angry. He's going back to that perception that Jonah has that we're going to get to in a minute, that perception that Jonah has of God's grace and his goodness and the whole Ninevite thing. And he's saying, do you have good reason to be angry? Are you reasoning properly, Jonah? And he's not, as we're going to see. But he's not faulting Jonah for his anger. He's meeting Jonah in his anger. And that's how we relate to God, folks honestly and authentically, bringing to him who we are, as we are, for help and healing in our lives. I love how Peter would say this some 600 years later. Look up here on the screen. He'd say, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That word anxiety there is the same word that Jesus used in the parable of the sower to refer to all those worries and cares of the world that choke out our faith, you know? And, uh, and, and so Peter's just capitalizing on this and saying, you know, all those cares and those worries and those anxieties that you have that threaten to choke out your faith, why don't you bring those to God? Why don't you learn to get honest with him about those kind of feelings? Because he cares for you. And he cares about those things inside of you. God wants us to bring all of our cares to him, the emotions, feelings, hurt, disappointments, to him. Jonah did it. It was part of learning to run with God. This weekend I have uh, some close friends in from Cleveland who uh, are, are visiting here. And um, this man was one of my uh, wife's campus life or youth for Christ leaders when uh, she was in high school and first come to the Lord. 
And so he ministered greatly to my wife and her family when we were back in Chagrin Falls. And then when I moved back there about eight, ten years ago, uh, become the senior pastor at Fellowship Bible Church there, um, we reconnected with my friend here. And again, he's out this weekend visiting with us. And uh, I asked him if I could share a little bit of his journey here because I think there's, there's a profound lesson for you and I in this. When I first got back to the Cleveland area, my friend was just going through a very, very difficult time. Um, his marriage was really, really hurting. We never thought it would happen. I mean, it was one of those marriages, like many of you see, where it just is seemingly so strong and so solid and so good, but there were some undercurrents of things that over the years had just you know, deeply threatened this marriage. And they'd had seven children over the years, just good kids. I got to perform the wedding for one of them, but, but the kids in many ways were really hurting too, and some of them were in various states of rebellion and making some very unwise decisions. And just suffice it to say that my friend was going through a very, very difficult time back at the turn of the century when we showed up back in Cleveland. And so for six years, I got to journey with my friend through a lot of ups and downs in his marriage and with his children and with his business and all of that. And uh, he's a seasonal business guy. He, um, he's a mason in the Chagrin area, like mason meaning bricks and mortars, not like the weird spiritual thing, just the bricks and mortars thing. And, uh, and, and yet, as we all know, mason back up in Ohio is like a nine-month-out-of-the-year endeavor. Nobody calls a mason in like the dead of winter. And so in the winter, he'd plow and uh, had a really successful plowing business. And he would graciously plow my lot for me at the end of every plowing time, you know, you get all the snow dumped in, and, and he'd just, he'd think of his pastor at the end of the time, and he'd come to my 60-foot driveway, and he'd plow it uh, every time it snowed, and uh, many times I'd, I'd come out and say hi to him, and I'll never forget one particular night, I just came out and said hi to him as he finished plowing my driveway, and, uh, and, and I said, how you doing today? And uh, he said, you know, it's just been a, been a really hard week. He said, you know, the marriage is really hurting, and I'm wrestling with these issues, and, you know, these couple of kids, and other things, and and then he kind of shocked me, and he said this. He said, but you know, I've spent all night up plowing, all night. And he said, and I've just been pouring my heart out to God. He said, I've just been pouring it all out to him. And he said, and I've just had the most sweet time of fellowship in this truck with God as I've just poured out all these nasty emotions to him for the last eight hours. I remember walking away from his truck thinking two things. I thought, one, now that is Christian maturity. That is Christian maturity when we can learn to do that. And I thought, and secondly, this guy is going to be an overcomer. And sure enough, he is. This guy is going to get through a lot of what he's going through. Why? Because he's learning. He is running with God. And folks, if we could all learn to do that, if we could all learn to not deny our emotions, stuff them, cover them up, ignore them, do what we do, but learn just to bring them to God, especially you men. Listen close, because we don't do this very well. We can learn just to get these things out with the Lord. Jonah was displeased exceedingly with God. There's no other stronger way to say it. He was red hot mad and he prayed. What a pattern for learning to run with God. Now, we're running out of time and there's more, much more. And so if you want to run with God, here's the next critical step. And this one is in black and white in the text here. And that is that you need to realize who God is and what he is like. Wow. You need to realize who God is and what he is like if you're ever going to learn to run with him. So once again, look with me at verse 2, this time at the latter half of it, and notice what Jonah goes on to say in this prayer. Now this is fascinating. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, now this is fascinating. 
Jonah, as we just established, doesn't really like God's grace right now, right? He's ticked at God's grace. And yet, in his prayer, he's reciting what Bible experts call this creedal confession. In other words, it appears very early on in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This was like a saying that Israel taught to their kids about who God is so that they could hammer home, this is God, this is God, this is God. And Jonah repeats this now to God in his prayer. He repeats the things that he knows are true about God that he's struggling with, with God. Isn't that fascinating? So he says, God, you're gracious, full of mercy and grace. This is a right understanding of God. And though Jonah doesn't really like it at this point, he's recognizing it and declaring it. And then he says, and you're merciful. Very interesting term. We don't have time to go into it today, but it's a a term that denotes God's compassion on all people, everybody, without exception. Write this verse down, Psalm 145, verse 9, uses the exact same term in the original Hebrew, in which it says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. Over all of his works, God is merciful. Then Jonah adds that God is slow to anger. This word here is a different word used of of anger than it was used of Jonah in verse 1 there. This word literally means wrath. It means to be so mad that you're actually going to take action out on the person. It's a stronger term, actually, than you find in verse 1. And and Jonah's saying that God is slow to do this. Did you know that about God? He is patient and kind with you. Then Jonah continues. He says God displays steadfast love or loyal love. Many of you have heard this Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word, kesed. It's a key word, a covenant word, used by God all the time in the Old Testament absolutely consistent and faithful in his love. And then finally, Jonah recognizes that God is one who relents from disaster, willing to work with us, not against us. And so don't miss this, folks. Jonah is coming to God with an intimate, personal knowledge of who he is and what he is like based on his revelation in the Old Testament. And even though Jonah is mad and angry at these character traits of God, he is still recognizing them, speaking them, and honoring them. And folks, this is critical. If you and I are ever going to relate to God as our Father and learn to run with Him. You see, we too need to know who God is fully in His character and His attributes. And the primary ones that Jonah is showing us here is His attributes of grace. As I've said to you guys time and time again, God made us in love. He loves us. But then we fell, and because of his justice, we deserve eternity without him. And he could have left us there. So you got love and justice. But what has God shown us? Grace. He's decided to forgive us anyways and give us Jesus. And what you're seeing here in Jonah is a foreshadowing of that grace which was to come. This is God. And the reality is, is that I don't think many people really understand this about God, both inside and outside the walls of the church. We need to get this about God, that he's a God of grace. We need to understand him for who he really is. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, Any of you guys know what an iPhone is? Give me your hand raise if you know what an iPhone is. All right, most of you, right? An iPhone is a new piece of technology. It makes cell phones look really kind of obsolete because it can do so much more than just a regular cell phone. It's like a little mini computer that you carry around with you. And uh, I own one, thank you. It's uh, tied to the church. Anyways, and, uh, and, and so um, on the iPhone, I don't have this app, but it came out with an app recently in January of 2009 that's now one of the top 100 apps for an iPhone out of 100,000 apps called Pocket God. 
Is this not goofy in our country? You can buy an app for your iPhone. It's a game that you play called Pocket God. And on this game, you are God over a small little island of pygmies. And you spend your time kind of uselessly doing whatever you want to this island because you're God. So you can cause a hurricane, an earthquake. You can change day to night. You can throw these little pygmies in a volcano. I'm not trying to gross you out. This is true. You can upend the iPhone because it's really technologically cool. And you can see these pygmies hanging on for dear life as you upend the iPhone. I, I mean, you can do all these things. And it was fascinating. You know what reviewers pointed out when it first came out in January? Now, don't miss this. Is about 90% of the actions that they allowed you to do as God were vengeful. Isn't that interesting? They were mean. They were nasty. They were, they were the kind of the actions that were more about retribution than anything else. They noted that only about 10% of the actions were anything benevolent or kind. I think that's the way many Americans tend to view God. In our guilt and in our misunderstanding, not the guilt's a misunderstanding, but we can have misunderstanding in our guilt, we tend to think that God is all about anger and retribution. At Baylor University did a study three years ago along with the Gallup organization trying to understand Americans' views of God. They found that a third of Americans see God as an authoritarian God, angry at humanity's sins and engaged in every creature's life and world affairs. Interesting. About a quarter of the respondents said they believe in a benevolent God who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents. About 16% believed in a critical God who was who is judgmental of this world and he's not going to intervene whether to punish or comfort. And then about another quarter, the remaining believed in a distant God who is more of a cosmic force that launched the world and now has left it spinning on its own. When I read about that study, you know what I thought to myself? I thought, my gosh, if you do not know the word of God, if you don't understand who God is and what he is like, you're in massive trouble in the culture that we live in today. I mean, think about that. Is God an authoritarian God? Well, of course he is. Is he mad at sin? Of course he is. But does it stop there? Of course not. Is he also a benevolent God who is willing to forgive us of our sin, as we saw in our video, and work with us, and especially as we come to him in Jesus? Is he willing to provide forgiveness and a new lease on life? Of course he is. Is he a distant God? Well, sometimes he feels that way, but has he just sort of left this world and left it spinning on its own? Of course not. That's a foolish view of God. Is he always critical of everything we do, kind of like some of our parents were? Of course not. Are you starting to get the picture here? How do I know all those things are true about God as I just whip through all that with you? I could provide a Bible text for every one of those. I could show you that in black and white. And we do that all the time here at Scottsdale Bible Church. But what scares me is you see a lot of Christians today are what we call biblically illiterate. They don't know enough Bible to convict themselves of being Christians in a court of law. And the reality is, is that we're then accidents waiting to happen in our view of God. Because we think we know what he's like when we really don't. And that's what Jonah is teaching us here. He's teaching us to understand what God is like. And that when you have a right understanding of him, now you're running with him. And that right understanding comes from his word. I love how A.W. Tozer, years ago, in his most famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said it. Look up here on the screen. He says, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labor, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished 
that noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. He says this will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. So feel what you need to feel, church, and bring it to God. Realize clearly who God is and what he is like and watch yourself begin to run with him. And as you do this, now that you're on your way, here's the third thing we take from Jonah, and that is get ready for God to run with you. Get ready for God to run with you. This is so cool, folks, that as you learn to run with God by bringing yourself as you are to him and then recognizing him clearly for who he is and all of his holiness and all of his grace, he then responds by running with you. In other words, as you relate to him and trust and faith, believing who he is and not playing games, he's going to meet you there and teach you about himself. And so don't forget what happens as this book wraps up. This is fascinating. As we've seen, Jonah shares with God his feeling and recognizes who he is. And then God challenges Jonah's theology in verse 4 there, right? He says, like, really, do you have a good theology here? Like, you're angry because I showed grace, and is that really cogent? Then Jonah leaves the city, and he makes a shelter in the desert just outside the city limits to wait and see if God still won't crush the Ninevites. He's, like, still ticked. And then God, yes, God, appoints a plant to grow. Look up here on the screen. It's most likely what we call a racinus plant, more commonly called a castor oil plant. It's more of a vine with large leaves. And he provides his plant to shade Jonah and provide some sun, uh, comfort from the sun. He's in a desert, just like we are. And so Jonah's feeling pretty good now. He spends the night, and the next day, God causes a worm to come and eat the root of the plant, which causes the leaves to die. And then the sun beats down on Jonah, this strong, hot desert sun, and a wind comes in off the desert, and Jonah's now miserable. We know what that feels like, too, because we live in a desert. And so Jonah, with all of this, begs to die. He says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just miserable physically, I'm mad at God's grace, and I just want to die and go to heaven. And then key to this, God begins to dialogue and reason with Jonah. Don't miss this. God dialogues with Jonah. As Jonah runs with him, God runs with him. And he says, do you see yet, Jonah? Do you still have reason to be angry, he says in verse 9? And Jonah, digging his heels in, says, you bet I do. You bet I got reason to be angry. It's honest dialogue. And then God reveals to him the truth of it all. Now, don't miss this, folks. This is the object lesson. He says, Jonah, you cared about this plant that you neither created nor that you nurtured. How much more do you think I then will care about all people whom I have made and I have nurtured, even the wayward ones? And the book ends. And some of you didn't get it earlier. You were thinking, well, the book seems to end without resolve. No, no, no. This book ends on the climax of the whole thing. It's the main point. He's saying, Jonah, you care about this plant. You got nothing to do with this plant. How selfish could you be? You didn't have anything to do with this thing, and it rises, and you care, and it dies, and you care. He goes, how much more am I going to care about all of humanity that I love that has fallen, that's going to spend eternity without me unless I redeem them? I care about them. In a sense, he's saying, I care about you, Jonah. You're my chosen prophet, but I care about these Ninevites and all the other people around you that need to know me and follow me. And folks, more than anything else, because we don't have time to see this, what I need you to simply see is that once Jonah came to God with honesty and authenticity of who he was and where he was at, and then once he recognized who God was and what he was like, honoring his character traits there in verse 2, it was at this point 
that God begins working and speaking in Jonah's life in a big and powerful way. It was at this point that God begins to get to the heart of it all with Jonah. And just like the story of the prodigal son, he pleads with Jonah to get with the program, to understand why God does what he does. What I need you to see as we end this series is simply that the main message at the end of this book is not just a message of grace, meaning that God wants to show grace to the Ninevites, though that's the point, but it's also that God shows grace to Jonah, that he runs with Jonah as Jonah runs with him. And that's what I need you to take with you with this, is that as you run with God, as you bring who you are to him, and then as you recognize him in the truth of who he is, all the biblical truth, the whole counsel of God, from Old Testament to New, from Moses to Jesus, he will run with you. And you will be relating to him in his grace, in his truth, as the father of you and the redeemer of you in Jesus, who he is. And that's the message of the story. And so go here today in a few minutes and chew on this. Go in such a way that you ask yourselves, am I running with God? I mean, I might be mad like Jonah. I might be happy like David when he was dancing before the Lord. doesn't matter. Am I bringing whatever it is who I am to God? Ask yourself that. Am I doing that? And then ask yourself, do I have a right understanding of him? Or is my understanding of him just so Americanized that it's based on Dr. Phil and Oprah? I mean, don't do that. Make your understanding of him based on his word to you. And if you don't know his word, join a Bible study, attend more worship services, start reading it on your own for crying out loud, and having a right understanding of who he is. And as those two things happen, look out. Because spiritual sparks will fly. He will start relating to you as you want him to, as the God of all glory, the God who loves you and has never given up on you. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, indeed you do love us and that your grace never ends. And Lord, as I told these folks when we started this series, this story is truly, truly a story of grace. We just can't get around it. And Father, I thank you that you never do give up on us and that as we come to you as we are, miserable and pathetic as that might be at times, but then as we recognize you for the truth of who you are, that you respond and that you respond by, by working and moving and acting in our lives in unmistakable ways. So, Lord, I pray that as we do those things, that, Lord, you'd surprise us, as Lewis said, that you'd surprise us with joy around every corner we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.